and you are very welcome to this edition of the Graham Norton Book Club. It is excellent to have you along as we make our way through the garden of earthly delights that is this wonderful realm of books and stories. Today we're dealing with other worlds of many kinds, and I'm delighted to say that accompanying me on this magical journey is author, broadcaster, screenwriter, and the woman behind the award-winning Confessions of Franny Langton in both its paper and television forms. You can find it on ITVX and other places. Sarah Collins, Sarah, hello, lovely to see you again. Hi, Graham. <laughs> uh, where in the world do I find Sarah Collins? Well, I'm currently in the Cayman Islands, but I'm on my way to Jamaica later tonight because, and very few people apart from probably farmers in Yorkshire have ever had to utter these words literally, but I am off to see a man about a cow. And I do mean that literally. Okay. Is it your cow? His cow? (laughs) My cows. It's a very long story, Graham, but I inherited some cows And they're currently living on my late dad's farm in the hills uh, of the north coast of Jamaica. But I I kind of have quasi-vegetarian, pescatarian sensibilities, so I can't bear for the cows to be slaughtered, which of course is the whole point of them being on this farm, which has given rise to a problem. Because while they've been roaming around happily up there, they've also been having more cows. So I'm off to see the man on the farm about um, how I solve the problem of my proliferating cows, essentially. And I I have no idea what I'm going to do with them. Will you be coming home with a cow? (laughs) Do you want one? Uh, No, I don't want one. I'm sure you've got lots of space over there in Ireland for a cow or two, Graham. A little Jamaican calf. Oh, it'd be lovely. It'd be lovely. (laughs) I hope that all works out okay for all involved. Uh, Let's dive between the covers of our book of the week, Her Majesty's Royal Coven. Juno Dawson's story of witches, demons, doom-laden prophecies and Spice Girl superfans. Here to talk about it are four of our very own Clubber Coven. Katie, who chose the book for us, Stuart, Shivan, and Saima. Hello to you all. Hello. Hello. And welcome back to you, Saima. Now, the Bradford Literary Festival, apparently uh, there's bunting in the street. Absolutely, there's bunting in the street. We've just had the most fabulous festival Massive scale, lots and lots of amazing audiences. We had over 116,000 attendees this year, so uh, we're absolutely delighted. COVID is well and truly over. Oh, no, don't tell yeah, Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay, I'm never going to say that again. <laughs> Talking prophecies. Yeah, yes. But listen, we are in the presence of a television star. Uh, Shivan, you've been on the goggle box. Yes. First and last appearance, Graham. What were you on? I didn't see it. I was on Newsnight. <laughs> oh, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> I was taking the side that was opposing the teaching strike. So you can imagine I wasn't the most popular member of staff the following Scab. day. Slow, slow, Scab. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> A little bit awkward. (laughs) All right. Listen, go and scour your cauldrons and we'll come back to you later to see if Her Majesty's Royal Coven had you spellbound or cursing the person who made you read it. After we've spoken to Juno Dawson herself and after Sarah has given us her three of the best, which this time has a certain air of nostalgia. Is that right, Sarah? I mean, I've been a bit rebellious. I'm going off topic today. I just didn't want to do witches. I know, there's a lot of them in the book, so yeah. There seemed to be a point very recently where everywhere you looked, there was another witchy book, and no offence to 17th century witches, but I am sick of you. (laughs) So I'm doing books about memory today instead. And I figure there is a tenuous link if you think about it. You know, witches, people haunted by their pasts and not such a leap, right? It's tenuous, but yes, I see what you're doing. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Looking forward to it. And of course, talking of being haunted, here's a slightly different way of dying. I look down from the stage at my mark. 
Honestly, babe, with these thighs, I would break your back. A double-pronged win. I'll make a fat joke before they can, plus I enjoy watching my target squirm. His pal gives him a urine nudge. Trust me, mate, you're not. Thing is, I want a man that can handle all of me. And I'm not just talking about my magnificent rack. That doesn't get its usual cheer, though two women applaud like they've just seen a marvellous rally at Wimbledon. What is up with this crowd? That's actress, stand-up, playwright, and most recently, novelist, Andy Osho, with some of her latest book, Tough Crowd, the story of a comedian trying to navigate life on and off the stage. We'll hear how she lifted it off the page later on in our Talking Book slot. Okay, it's time to get our witch on. Five little girls, Helena, twins Neve and Kira, Elle and Leone, are firm childhood friends, sharing everything from their latest crush to which Spice Girl they long to be. They live a normal existence, except for one thing. They are all witches with special powers, from mind reading to summoning fire to healing to levitation. They are part of this world's ancient and rich witch tradition, which conducts its business while the non-magical community of mundanes is totally unaware of their existence. Her Majesty's Royal Coven, the HMRC, is nothing to do with revenue and customs, but is the official government department in charge of making sure that any witch or warlock with evil on their minds is kept under control. Helena becomes its high priestess, and the other girls grow up to live happily magical and non-magical lives. But then, a terrible prophecy comes to light. A sullied child will herald the return of Leviathan, a super-demon who will wreak havoc and destruction. That child is Theo, who is captured by Helena and then placed in the care of Neve. Is Theo a monster and harbinger of doom, or just a teenager trying to work out their gender identity? The girls are pitched against each other and events reach a climax in a final showdown. Juno Dawson is a successful author, journalist and playwright. She's especially known for her young adult titles such as Margot and Me, Clean and Meat Market. She writes extensively about LGBTQ issues with best-selling titles like This Book is Gay, her LGBTQ guide for young people and her memoir, The Gender Games. Her Majesty's Royal Coven is her first adult novel. When we spoke, I wanted to know if it was the joke of using the HMRC abbreviation or the idea of official witches that initially inspired her. It all started in a hotel room in Melbourne in about 2018. I was on tour and I was starting to think about what my first adult novel would be and what I would want to read as a, I think I was in my like mid-30s at that point. And I was in bed, jet-lagged, and I sort of thought, right, Desperate housewives, but they're witches in Hebden Bridge. <laughs> and I got out of bed and sort of wrote down some notes on like the hotel stationery. And kind of between 2018 and 2020, when I started writing it, sort of the, dare I say it, the trans debate was kind of getting worse and worse and worse. And kind of everybody wanted me to write about it. And I started to sort of think about the coven as the ultimate kind of women's only space that you kind of evolved it went from just being desperate housewives with witches into being something a little bit more allegorical and so the last thing that happened was the actual structure of the coven itself 
And then like the last thing was, what if it was called HMRC? What if it was Her Majesty's Royal Coven? And then I was like, that's stupid. I have to write this book. So I did. (laughs) You did. And it's just fantastic. Actually, Katie Blankton, who's the clubber who chose uh, the book, she was asking about that idea of, you know, she says, one of the things I love about the series is that it tackles some huge social issues, but uh, never sacrifices plot, pace or story. And so she just wondered which comes first in a way, you know, when you kind of think, right, I'm going to put this issue in, uh, you know, how do you kind of make sure that it doesn't derail the, the flow? the book for me there was there was nothing I wanted to write about less than kind of trans exclusionary kind of groups but I did want to write something that felt almost like a novel had a baby with a comic book have a novel with a marvel film and and I was writing this book in 2020 it was the height of that first big lockdown I was going out of my mind. We couldn't go to the cinema. There were no new film releases. And so as much as I felt almost honour bound to kind of write about my experience as a trans writer, what I really, really wanted was to watch another Wonder Woman film. (laughs) And there weren't (laughs) any. And so I kind of thought, well, you need to write a novel that kind of feels as euphoric as the first time you watched Wonder Woman or Avengers Assemble or something like that. And And I'm a big believer in the old Toni Morrison quote, which is, you know, if you can't find the book you want to read, you you have to write it. And I couldn't quite find something that scratched that kind of blockbuster itch that I was really missing in lockdown. But also, it seems to me it works so well because of that whole idea in mythology of, you know, the changeling and metamorphosis and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't seem shoehorned in in any way. I like to think so. And I think that this was my way of writing about something that was on my mind a lot. You know, we all had much too much time on our hands that year. It blew my mind. It really, really did that during the first global pandemic we've experienced in a hundred years, that the British press in particular still found so much time to talk about trans people and, and particularly trans youth. And I can't write in a vacuum. I can't ignore what's happening in the news, least of all when we're on lockdown and, you know, we can't leave the house. And I suppose Her Majesty's Royal Coven was my way of processing that kind of toxicity. And it was very cathartic. It felt like a way of talking about something that I didn't really want to talk about in a way that I found super fun. Um, one of the things I loved was was that actually, as you say, we're so far into the book before any of this comes up. You know, all the world building has happened. We've met all the main characters. You know, we're so deep in that thing. And I, in the first episode, I was talking to Mick Heron, who did wrote the Slow Horses series, and he was talking about that idea of introducing everybody. How did you approach it in terms of, you know, the arc of this trilogy? Uh, did you know how much information to give? Because there's a lot of backstory here. Yes, there is a lot of backstory. And one one comment has been there are a lot of characters. And there are. But that's because <laughs> as well as being inspired by a big, long history of witch stories, you know, um, I was as inspired by the Spice Girls, which were my first love as a 90s <laughs> child. For me, this book is as much about female friendship as it is about the fact they're witches. And it's about five witches who've been friends since they were little girls. And now they're in their mid thirties. 
don't get me wrong, it's it's a story about witches, but I also I think it it is a story about what happens when you've been friends for 20, 30 years and it's too much friendship to walk away from. You couldn't quit that friendship. But at the same time, you've become very different adults. You know, you're not the same adolescence that you were. And how do you manage big ideological differences in your friendship group? But I can imagine that lots of your teen fans have come with you to this book because I, as I was reading, I was thinking, oh, if I was a kid, I'd love how naughty this book is. But there's enough young characters to keep you hooked. When I was writing a young adult, people at weddings would always say, you know, one day you're going to write a real book. <laughs> and I was like, this is wild, you know, because young adult fiction is some of the most genre bending, exciting spaces to work in, you know, with authors like Patrick Ness and Philip Pullman and Mallory Blackman, Louise O'Neill, so many amazing writers. And so I always took that as a bit of a slur. And so I really did want to kind of credit those readers who'd grown up on my first novels. I fully understood that my readers who were reading me in 2012 are now in their mid-20s, you know, they're, they're not teenagers anymore. There is something so universal about the high school experience. You know, every adult has been a young adult and the term young adult itself is so flexible. There are days I still feel like a young adult. I still feel like I'm figuring it out. And I think that's why a lot of adults love reading YA books anyway. And if you look at the success of things like Heartstopper, you know, which is selling millions and millions of copies, that's not just kids. You know, it can't just be kids. Hey, listen, there's some questions we ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Uh, so the first one is a book that got you into reading, turned you onto the world of books. What was that, Juno? Do you know, it's so weird. I always loved books. I sort of fetishized them as a child and I really wanted to be able to read. Like I saw the novels on my mum's shelf, a lot of Catherine Cookson mm. and a lot of those really glamorous Jilly Cooper <laughs> books that had the 80s ladies on. And I remember there was one called Imogen and they all had women with really massive hair. And I was like, right, I have to learn to read so I can read about these women with massive hair. But actually, if I'm going to be honest, and this will come as no surprise to any children of the 80s, and it's boring, but it was Roald Dahl. It was George's Marvelous Medicine. And yeah, he does kill his grandma. He literally poisons an old lady. <laughs> and that is really problematic. But as a child, it was the best thing in the world. And I can't sit here and be like, oh, how awful, how unpolitically correct. Because that, that grandma was really horrible and she kind of had it coming. As boring and predictable as it is, I did become a reader through through Roald Dahl. Very good. And the next one is a book that you think not enough people know about, one that kind of sank without trace. So I think I want to shout out an amazing British author who also came up from the world of YA. And her YA just has done really, really well, but her adult books haven't made the splash that I think they should. And that's an author called Holly Bourne. I think she's wonderful. I think she's got the same gift that Marion Keyes has, where she can take incredibly difficult subjects and handle them with this absolutely incredible lightness of touch. And her most recent adult novel was called Girlfriends. And I thought it explored toxic female friendships really, really well. And, and, and it didn't sell as well as I think it deserved to. Okay, shout out to her. And the last one is a book that you admire so much, you wish it said Juno Dawson on the cover. This one is so easy because I did nearly quit. I, I read this book last year on holiday and I, was, I, I almost threw the towel in. Um, and that is Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. 
it's a perfect novel, a dystopian book about the end of the world. And strange, I think she wrote it in 2011, but that woman saw COVID coming. In, in the book, it's called the, it's called the Russian Flu. You'd think that would be really bleak, but it, it's not the road. Um, it's about humanity and hope and art, the importance of art and how humanity can survive through art. It's everything I love in a book in that it's pacey, it's plotted, the characters are beautiful, it's well-written but not pretentious. It's a flawless novel. Juno Dawson on writing about official witches and the books that cast a spell on her. Now, enough magic for a bit. Sarah, we are playing a slightly different kind of mind game, I believe. Yeah, we're going down memory lane and it'll probably come as no surprise that I'm kicking off with Sebastian Barry brilliant Irish author. I think he's sort of the Irish maestro of memory because it ain't a Sebastian Barry novel if everyone in it isn't kind of haunted by their tortured pasts, really. But I do love them. And I think his most recent one, Old God's Time, is his best yet. Have you read it? If you haven't, highly recommend it. I haven't. Now, is this one still in America or has he moved on? He's actually come right back to a rather gothic windswept part of the Irish coast, which is good news. It opens with a retired cop who's living on a flat there, pottering away, consumed with memories of his beloved wife and their two kids, when there comes a knock at the door and he opens it to find two of his former policeman colleagues who are rather hoping he can help them with their investigation into the murder of a local priest. So the cop bit gives the whole thing a kind of spicy procedural feel. But the real pace comes from the way his memories kind of unspool to lay out how his family history intersects rather tragically with this murder. And if I say priests in the context of Ireland, then that's a sort of huge bit of foreshadowing that there's some awful things to come. But I found it genuinely unputdownable in spite of the difficult subject matter. And I think it's because reading it, I realised that sometimes the only way, or I guess I was reminded that sometimes the only way for victims of the kinds of abuses that are committed by institutions like the church to get justice is simply to have their story told and heard. It's a simple thing, but it's a profound thing, especially when these venerated institutions conspire to suppress collective memory of the sins they've committed. And Barry does that so brilliantly and so movingly in all of his books. I'm a huge fan of his, but I think he has really outdone himself with this one. It is a transcendent novel. Wow, you really, really sold that one. I absolutely love it. All right, let's move on to the second one. (laughs) And so my second pick is a book where the clue is in the title. It's In Memoriam by Alice Wynne. And this was a stonking success of a debut. It's really stormed the charts and deservedly was selected as the Waterstones debut novel of the year. It's a fantastic, gorgeous, immensely readable book about the experiences of young soldiers in the First World War. And you're thinking all of that's going to feel very familiar. But there's a love story at the heart of it, which is really tender and really ecstatic and really brokenhearted. And it develops between two young men who are best friends at boarding school on the eve of the war. And they're secretly, desperately yearning for each other, but they 
can't do anything about it and they don't find the courage to until one of them enlists and the other one on a whim decides to follow him. And I think the key was seeing the war through the lens of that love story because it took this really well-traveled territory, for me anyway, it made it seem somehow as if I was seeing it anew. It's a debut novel, as I said, but it is so assured and utterly convincing that you will scratch your head at the fact that it could be a debut. It's full of pain, it's full of heart, and it's full of adventure. I really, really love this one as well. Fantastic. Uh, Your final choice today, Sarah. Now, the first two landed on some pretty heavy topics, and I'm afraid to say the third one's not much lighter. (laughs) But I think it does deserve a place on a list of books about memory because it's all about how our identities are shaped by our memories. They are. It's Tell Me What I Am. It's by Una Mannion. Irish authors are dominating my list today because she's an Irish-American author. She lives in Sligo. In this one, a woman has gone missing and she's left behind her sister and her toddler daughter. And we get their alternating perspectives of the aftermath. So the daughter is now a teenager living in rural Vermont with her very domineering dad. And she has absolutely no memories of her early childhood. But her dad has told her her mother abandoned her. And he keeps her so completely isolated that she becomes this kind of blank slate on which he's stamping his own image. And then at the same time, we get the perspective of her aunt, the missing woman's sister, who believes that her sister was murdered by her husband, but she doesn't know how to prove it. And what the book does is it teases out these gaps in the respective protagonist's memories to keep you really hooked trying to figure out what happened to this missing woman. But it also works as a way of exploring how much power someone has over you when they've got the ability to tell you your story because I guess for me anyway that's what memory really is it's a way of telling yourself your own story and it makes all the difference to the kind of power you feel in the world and that's really beautifully illustrated with a teenage character in this novel Uh, Great choices. Thank you so much, Sarah. And if you've been too busy trying to find Eye of Bat and Toe of Newt on Amazon to note down the details of the books we mention as we go along, don't worry. Just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for The Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage with all of the books that get mentioned on the podcast. levitate over to the Clubber Coven and see what's bubbling here to talk about Her Majesty's Royal Coven are former librarian and toy shop part-timer Stuart Bain. Hello. Teacher and YouTuber Sheevan Davis. Hello. Hello. Uh, the mastermind behind the Bradford Literary Festival, Saima Aslam MBE. Hello to you. Hello. And ex-bookseller, now literary agent, Katie Blagden. Hi, Katie. And uh, you chose the book for us. So it's uh, it's about witches, but it's also about lots of other things. Why did you think this was the one to bring to book club? There is definitely part of me that was like, this is just really unashamedly big fantasy. And I love it. And I was a bit curious as to see how that would go down with some of the clubbers. But... It's just a really good book. The writing is so pacey. It's got magic and witches and prophecies, you know, everything you could ever want, plus Spice Girls. So I just think it's a brilliant, fun read. Okay, no sitting on the fence with Katie. She loves it. Uh, Let's turn to Stuart. Now, Stuart, you, we know you love kind of murder mysteries, all of those things. How are you about fantasy in general? In general, I haven't read a lot of fantasy, and I was quite excited about this book because Katie's picks 
tend to be all things I wouldn't dream of picking up normally, and that can go either way. And um, we've had some real successes <laughs> that I've loved. This one didn't quite grab me. <laughs> but I thought overall, for me, it felt a bit flat. It was like it had all the right elements. I just wasn't really involved in that story. Asaima, were you grabbed? I was and I wasn't. It was, it was an interesting one because I do love fantasy. And I did wonder when I was reading it, there was a little bit of me which was starting to feel echoes of other books. But you can get that with fantasy because everything's, you know, at the end of the day, boring and everything goes back to Tolkien and all of that. Um, I loved the fact that it was set in the North. So I was reading it and I was like, oh, Howden Bridge and oh, this and oh, that, because it's, it's a good, well-written book. Um, maybe it was, it was too near home. Maybe I just prefer fantasy that's just in a different world. Not Hebden Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's Judo Dawson's first adult book. Was it adult enough, do you think, Shivan? So I think that's probably where I'd start in terms of why I didn't like the book. I just don't think it was in the right category. I mean, it's just not an adult book, I don't think. It's very much YA. The dialogue is YA. The characters are YA. The kind of conceit itself is YA. And I found the, the narrative voice, like a smart 17-year-old perhaps, I suppose being kind of as fair as possible. So... From the very get-go, I was expecting this adult fantasy book, but it's very much a YA fantasy book with lots of swearing in it. That's as, that's, <laughs> as far as I can tell, that's why it's adult. I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I can't see any other reason why it's yeah. adult. <laughs> Katie, has this really moved on from Juno Dawson's other books, or is there just a bit of swearing and some people are over 20? I mean, you know what? It's fine, guys. I appreciate everybody's opinion. I'm sorry that you're all wrong. and <laughs> I, will, I will vehemently die on this hill. She has definitely stepped up in my opinion from her YA writing I think there's definitely that element that there is some like literary snobbery about it because it is kind of unashamedly just commercial but I really I just think there's nothing wrong with that actually I just really enjoy it where would you place this novel, Sarah? Young adult? Adult? Publishers are obsessed with this. It's like, what, you know, the first question they need to answer about a book is, how can we sell this and where are we going to put it on the shelves? And it's also the question that kept on leaping out at me while I was reading this book because I was very confused about the tone. I mean, it reads to me like YA, but if you're reading it aloud, you'd have to bleep out, you know, bits of it that are very adult. So it's almost as if it's, a, it's YA in structure and style but adult in content. And well, except it will be like a, young people will love reading this because it, they're thinking they're reading an adult novel. Yes. I mean, that sort of subversive yeah. feeling that I used to get when I snuck my mom's Jackie Collins's into the bathroom. <laughs> you know, you're yeah. reading something you're not supposed to be reading. But also I thought at its heart, it's, I think Juno said this when you interviewed her as well. It's really a novel about friendship. And in that sense, we can all relate to this idea that you're in this group of friends, a long-standing friendships that are being affected by people falling down rabbit holes and being obsessed with conspiracy theories or you know, revealing themselves to be racist or whatever it might be. It's about whether you can hold on to the love you feel for people in spite of your sort of opposing points of view. And I think that at its core is a really sort of universal message. Yeah. One of the strong things I thought about the book was the world building, that she'd really gone into kind of the past and this kind of fictional history. Did anyone else think that was well done? Obviously, you did, Katie. Uh, boys, <laughs> the boys in particular. Uh, did you think that was well, well done? I was interested when she did touch on the history, like back to Anne Boleyn and all that. But I just kept finding 
those references seemed much more interesting than what I was actually reading. There was several times in the book where things were mentioned, and I was like, now this is interesting. This is what I would like to find out a bit more about. <laughs> I think, uh, let me touch on what I think it is as well. So it's, the dialogue is pretty turgid, but it's also the fact that it's just so in your face with how morally righteous it is. And it's kind of obsessed about being virtuous and righteous. And that grates quite quickly. And, and I found that quite juvenile because it's, it's this idea that this opinion is right and everything else is wrong and there's no nuance in between. I think it maybe then that's the thing as well. Is I kind of tend to agree with most of the stuff in this book and therefore was just reading it as like an enjoyable book about fantasy and stuff like that. So maybe it is that there is just a political divide there. And that's, I guess, OK. I know, but that's the thing. I think if it had been the opposite, it had views that I support and agree with. If it had been written in the style that it was written in, I would have done exactly the same thing. I wouldn't have got past page 10 either. Okay. It felt like the novel was saying there's no conversations to be had and it closes down a conversation as opposed to having a conversation. But it's, it, there is that bit at the end when we do see things from Helena's point of view. I think you, spot, you were talking about that, Katie. I found that quite surprising in a weird way getting to that as a reader because the fact that you get to see why Helena has so much fear and anger in her life. And I think there's a lot of writers who wouldn't necessarily have done that. It would have been easier to just make her an out-and-out villain. As much as she is kind of an evil person who's summoning demons and trying to take over the world, you also are like, oh, babes, sucks to be you. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> she didn't need to do that. I think mainly for me, I was really looking forward to a book about witches and I didn't know it had the sort of the political element and I feel that it didn't quite hit either well enough I think it could have been a really strong fantasy book about witches that I would have totally gotten into or I would have liked to have maybe had the the narration by the Theo character and been totally brought in and seen through their eyes but I just feel that it didn't quite come off because it was trying to do two very different things I thought. What do you think, Simon? Because the, the the whole kind of white witch privilege doesn't really come up till about halfway through the book. I, I think uh, once you start getting to a certain point in the book, the issues start overwhelming the witchcraft and the rest of the narrative building. You know, you can see all the world building and it's done really, really well. And, you know, there were so many interesting things with it. The history was really interesting. The whole Northern perspective was really interesting. But then it becomes very, very issue based and you can't actually hear the rest of the book for the issues in a way. Sarah, what did you think? It was a kind of polemic about checking your white witch privilege, which made me laugh. You know, there, there, was, there was no one who was more dangerous in this world than the white witches. Having said that, it felt a bit like there was a sort of checklist of all the things you had to cover, you know, the sort of problems of the modern world. And it did, I feel, range a bit widely across all of those topics, but it does it so well, this book. What it does is it balances the ideas with the action um, so that you are carried along and you never really feel like you're being given a lecture. So one of the things we do at the end of our book club discussions is to come up with a score. So we need out of 10 how likely you are to recommend this book to a friend. Uh, I'll, oh, let's start low. Let's go with Sheevan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. I think I give this one a two. Okay, you've you've said enough. Thank you, uh, Simon. What are you giving this book out of ten? How likely are you to recommend it? I think I'd give it a five. I think there's a lot of people who would really enjoy it, like Katie has done, and you know, fantasy's having a moment as well. I think equally, there are other people who want. And I think actually, for me, if you're like a real diehard fantasy fan, it it did kind of lose it. Stuart, how likely are you to recommend this to a friend? I 
don't know who I would recommend this book to simply because I don't think it succeeds well enough as fantasy or in dealing with the, the sort of the, the issues. A four from me. A four? Okay, double achieving give. Uh, come on, Katie, you've got to pick it up. Luckily, these guys don't know, but I'm going to go and get the coven together after this. <laughs> and just send a few, send a few curses. These no, no, I'm joking. Obviously, everyone's allowed their opinion, even if it's wrong. No, so actually, with the recommendation score. I wouldn't give it a 10 because I wouldn't recommend it to my dad or Sheevan. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being very mean. But no, I, so I'd give it an 8 because I genuinely think there's just so much enjoyable here. It's got such a roaring plot. And I just, yeah, I think it's brilliant writing. Okay. So don't listen to anyone else on this podcast, guys. All right. Thank you for those scores. It's time to find out now what's on the agenda for next week. And it is the turn of Sheevan. What have you chosen? I have chosen Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders, which is a kind of metaphysical magic realist tale about the death of Lincoln's son and a bunch of people and spirits in limbo trying to rescue him and bring him into the correct afterlife. It's kind of funny, metaphysical and very much uh, experimental in terms of the form. All right. Well, we look forward to talking about George Saunders' Lincoln in the Bardo next time. And it just remains for me to thank you all for talking about Her Majesty's Royal Coven. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. See you. And now it's time for our regular visit to Audio Book World and someone who is trying to dress for success. I stare at the four outfits laid across the pull-down bed in my tiny Islington studio. Renting in these ends was a feeble attempt to prove to my mum I'm a success, but in reality, this place is so small I'm scared to put the front door key in too vigorously in case I smash the kitchen window. In the background, as always, my laptop browser is on the Comedy Buzz channel, where reruns of Showtime at the Athena play on a loop. Every second or third act pulls my attention as I watch in awe, jealousy, but mainly bewilderment, wondering how my comedy will get me there when I'm still struggling to get my first paid gig. You will almost certainly recognise actress Andy Osho from one of her many roles in hit TV series like Blue Lights, I May Destroy You, Sex Education, Line of Duty, Holby, Death in Paradise or Good Omens. She's also a successful comedian with sellout tours and appearances on UK shows like Live at the Apollo, Room 101 and Mock the Week. And as if that wasn't enough, in 2021 she published her first novel, Asking for a Friend. Now she's launched her second. Tough Crowd, which sees aspiring comedian Abby meet the man of her dreams only to have a rude awakening when it comes to winning over his two daughters, her toughest crowd yet. We spoke and I started with how she navigated narrating stand-up. Do you know, that was really tricky because obviously, as you know, like stand-up isn't meant to be read. If it were, then everybody would be issuing, you know, leaflets at the start of their gigs and just go home. Like it's not meant to be read. It's meant to be performed. So that was a challenge. But then also Abby goes on a journey of sort of improving her writing ability. So I had to write stand up that was not good at the beginning, but not so bad that people thought, oh my God, how does she make a living (laughs) doing stand up if this is the quality of, (laughs) you know, her ability to write it. So it was a really tricky, it actually 
took quite a bit of time to get Abby's stand up right. No, I thought you did a brilliant job, particularly that idea of her improving with time till she gets her big triumphal gig at the end. I thought that was really, really well done. The other half of the book with a single dad, I wondered how much of that is drawn from life because I thought it was interesting that you went with two daughters. Yeah, so I have dated people who have got kids and there's been situations where it's been more long-term and getting to know the kids and having a relationship with them. And I thought it was just a really emotionally interesting space to be in for a woman like me who doesn't have kids, probably doesn't have the intention of having children. And it was a real sort of um, emotional wake up call, I guess, to be in a relationship with somebody who's had kids from a previous relationship. And you think you're all grown up. And then you realize maybe not so much when you're experiencing sort of emotions that you think, I should be over this. I shouldn't be jealous of a kid. I shouldn't be, you know what I mean? All those sorts of things. So I thought that would be really interesting to explore in a book. And obviously now you you act, but am I right in thinking you've said goodbye to comedy? You've said goodbye to stand-up? Yeah, and that's kind of what the book is really, is like me just sort of saying, listen, love you, but <laughs> I'm off ski, you know? Like, so, But I, I do have a lot, I, I don't know if you feel the same, but I have a lot of affection for stand-up and my time doing it, but I don't feel a pull to go back. So this was a nice way of, you know, those jokes that have no home to go to now, like this was a place that I could put them all. And when you do book events, do you try out Abby's material? Do you do, do you read from those sections of the book? I've, I've only had to read uh, once from the book, but I think I'd feel really like, because it would be super cringe if I read Abby's stand up and people are like, okay. <laughs> but it's like, no guys, so what it is, is it's meant to be bad. So um, joke's on you, actually. <laughs> oh, that'd be awful. <laughs> um, now you've done the audiobook for both your novels. Have you ever done other audiobooks or just your own? I have, li- that is my only experience. And did you enjoy the experience? Do you enjoy the experience? I mean, I'm going to say yes. It's it's quite challenging, but it was fun because it was my characters. You know, I knew them really well and I knew what the intention was behind some of the lines and, and knew where the jokes were when maybe someone else coming to it might not have known where they are kind of thing. Like it just looks like a line, but actually it's gag as well. So so that was kind of fun. But the level of concentration required for audiobooks. I mean, I take my hat off to people who do them regularly because like, wow. <laughs> and did you do that thing where you're reading along and then you realise, oh no, I've made that character come from Newcastle or I've made that character come from wherever and now I've got to do it? <laughs> well, yes, Graham, because in Tough Crowd, as I was writing... Frank, who is a stand-up comedian of uh, South Korean heritage, he's, you know, born and raised in London. He works in a sort of posh South London school, but he is sending up his heritage in his routines. And so there was a lot of emails back and forth of like, so when I do the audio book, um, should I, how should I do Frank doing his, his act? You know, like, can I really do a South Korean accent? Should I do a South Korean accent? <laughs> so, yeah, that was, that was, oh, didn't, didn't think of that at all when I was writing him. It's tricky. And what did you decide in the end? It's a sort of a, a suggestion of a suggestion. <laughs> so it's not, it's absolutely not the accent because <laughs> that's like whatever, whatever the measure of inappropriate is, it's like the other side of that. It's so far over the other side of that. So it's a suggestion of a suggestion, but also it's tricky because he's sending up the South Korean accent by doing it as well. So 
it's not like I'm doing a South Korean character. So I sort of just circumvented it by, yeah, not dealing with it. <laughs> now, there's some questions, Andy, that we ask everybody uh, who comes on the podcast. Mm. Um, a book that turned you on to reading. There's a book called Willie the Squouse by um, Ted Allen, which nobody has heard of, but it was a book that I really loved. It was basically about this creature that was a cross between a mouse and a squirrel, that's a squouse. And he ended up living in this house and the neighbours were trying to kill him. And so he found that the, the house that he was living in, the people had died, but they had loads of cash in the house. And so he was using this cash to bung up the hole where the neighbours were trying to entice him through with cheese. And the neighbours thought it was a magic hole because money kept coming through. <laughs> so I think that was the point in which I thought, oh, book's brilliant. Uh, the next book I want to know about is a book that you have found comfort in, a book that, you know, maybe you go to it in trouble times, but maybe it's just one of those books that's like a warm blanket. I think it would be something like Big Magic, the Elizabeth Gilbert book, which is is basically a really lovely, easy read about creativity. And when, you know, you work in the creative industries, it can all become very serious, especially when you have to get into the business side of things. So a book where she just really talks about what a joy it is and what a joy it can be and how it's not that big a deal, you know, is, is actually really reassuring because it makes you... It gives you the space to not take it all so seriously at times. We're not we're not rocket scientists here. We're not doctors. We're not saving lives. It's just we're writing books and yeah, definite comfort. Um, and the final book I want to know about is the book that you have given most often as a gift. Is there a book that you you press into people's hands? Um, I haven't given it this as a gift, but like I tell people about it all the time. Rich Dad Poor Dad, which is a finance book. My cousin gave it to me when I was about sort of 27, 28, and I was very bad with money. And it literally changed my life. Like within two, three years of that, I was debt-free, owned my own property, you know, because I had nothing to show for my money at that point. I used to just go out loads and just have a good time. I had good memories. <laughs> that was it. So I always say to people, listen, read this book, change your life. <laughs> The wonderful Andy Osho on being a comedian, writing about being a comedian, and her favourite things to read. It is nearly time to wash out our cauldrons and leave them upside down in the sink. But before we do that, our very own statistical sorceress, audiobook insider and chart maven, Holly Newson is here to read the runes and impress us with her oracular powers. Holly, tell us your predictions for book success. <laughs> well, on a day when we're celebrating the supernatural, I'm excited by this big hitter because it's not every day that Stephen King names a book after you. Wow. Yeah, I mean, okay, well, he, he doesn't know of my existence, I should think. Um, but his latest release, Holly, is doing great in the most sold fiction chart and overall books chart. Um, specifically the audiobook. And all versions, print, ebook and audiobook, take up the top three places of the horror chart. The story follows beloved King character, Detective Holly Gibney. I know this is in the horror chart, it was always going to be placed there with Stephen King's name on it, but it's also kind of a thriller, just a slightly more scary one. And rather than a supernatural element in this one, we have a serial killer. 
Beyond the books, Holly's character made it into some Stephen King TV adaptations, being played by Justin Lupe and Cynthia Erivo. So fans were definitely ready for her to have her own book. I mean, Stephen King is incredible. There aren't many people who've had that longevity. Yeah, and the fans are, you know, straight on it every time a new book is out. And I, I wonder, in your crystal ball, can you see whether Stephen King is ever going to say yes to coming on the book club? <laughs> <laughs> we do ask, and he does say no. <laughs> anyway, we'll keep trying. Uh, what's next, Holly? So it'll be interesting to see the ongoing success of this next book. It's Elon Musk's biography by journalist Walter Isaacson, just called Elon Musk. I guess we need say no more. Um, the audio and print are high on the biographies chart and on the business, finance and law chart and popping up in the overall chart. Walter Isaacson is the same guy that wrote Steve Jobs' autobiography. So now he's kind of collecting the stories of billionaires. <laughs> you know, <a> fair play. <laughs> um, I do love one of the lines in particular from the blurb of this. But is Musk a genius or a jerk? Um, and I suspect we all have our own thoughts on that. And Elon is doing a very good job of answering that question for us. <laughs> uh, all right, what's the next one we should watch? Um, yeah, so finally, something that doesn't pop up in the bestsellers too often, poetry. Let the Light Pour In by Lem Say was on the overall bestsellers during pre-order. And it looks like it's going to be a rare and wonderful poetry commercial success. Lem is a household name, so I think we will see more success. If anyone can make poetry more mainstream right now, it's Lem. I mean, Lem is extraordinary. And what I love about that book, you know, it's morning poems. And it, like him, it's such a positive idea that you wake up and you read one of the, these poems. And he was on here on series two, I think it was, with My Name Is Why, his autobiography, which is fantastic. Such a nice man with an extraordinary backstory. So I'm delighted that book is doing so well. Uh, all right. Thank you very much, Holly. Don't forget, you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Morton Book Club on Amazon or Audible and all the information you need will be right there. Our clubbers have gone off to watch Sheevan and Stuart arm wrestle over whether Baby Spice is better than scary. So it just remains for me to thank Sarah Collins for casting her always magical spell over the book club today. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, Graham. Lovely to have been here as always. Uh, safe travels and uh, don't come back with a cough. I beg you. <laughs> uh, don't forget the Graham Norton Book Club is available on Audible or for our last series and this one wherever you get your podcasts. So spread the word far and wide and leave a rating and a review if you have a moment. Also, don't forget to join us next time when our book is George Saunders' Lincoln in the Bardo and we'll be talking to sports presenter and all-round good egg Claire Balding about her Isle of Dogs. Till then, happy reading and listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.